Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller is my co-host. We have a few topics for you today. As usual, we'll kick off with our news roundup where we'll cover three topics in brief. Uh, The first of those is uh, the story this week about um, the Apple Pencil that comes with the iPad Pro or comes as an accessory to the iPad Pro. Um, We'll get into the details of this, but essentially a beta version of the iOS software removed certain functionality associated with the Pencil. And in response to feedback from bloggers and others, uh, it appears Apple's going to be restoring that functionality. So we'll talk about that. Uh, We'll spend some time talking about the announcements made at Mobile World Congress over the past few days. This is the big mobile industry shindig in Barcelona, Spain, uh, where Samsung, LG, Xiaomi, and others have announced new smartphones, among other things. And so we'll talk about some of those briefly. And then we'll cover the earnings for Fitbit, the fitness uh, device company. So that's our news roundup topics. And then our question of the week will come after that. And the question of the week this week is, what is the state of the global smartphone market? And this is something that we'll we'll dig into in quite a bit of detail, kind of what's going on in that market right now. Uh, And uh, this is uh, partly coming out of a a slide deck that I'm working on, which will kind of summarize with lots of charts and so on, the state of the global smartphone market. So we'll drill into that in some detail today. And then finally, we're going to continue uh, our discussion from last week about this Apple FBI case and uh, what's happened since last Friday when we recorded our last episode. So lots been happening there. And so that will be our final major topic. And then we'll wrap up as usual with our weekly pick where Aaron's going to recommend a website. Uh, so let's kick off the, the news roundup. Uh, Aaron, do you want to just summarize the, the details of this pencil navigation issue and what's happened there? Yeah, so when the Apple Pencil came out, um, one of the to to go with the iPad Pro, one of the things that a lot of people really liked was the ability to navigate with the pencil, which is not a very Jobsian, Ivian approach to a tablet, right? They've always made a big deal out of the fact that you should be able to use it with just a fing- with just you know your fingers. Um, but a lot of people found that the pencil was a preferable way to navigate on the iPad Pro versus a finger. In fact, there's some people who say it's an accessibility improvement because of you know, like hand pain or strain or other issues that they might have. Um, anyway, when the public beta came out, the 9.3, I think it was beta, public beta number two, it removed the ability to navigate with the pencil. You could still use it for drawing and all the other things, but general navigation features essentially went away. It turned out there were a lot of iPad Pro users that had fallen in love with their iPad Pro and with the pencil and uh, and and really miss this ability to navigate with a pencil instead of um, just your finger. What the details there are interesting. I think what's really there's a bigger picture here that I think is more interesting, which is the fact that Apple just this week said that they're going to be restoring the navigation ability of the pencil before 9.3 ships, which everybody is assuming will be mid March. Um, The reason that seems like a big deal and is unique to me is because this whole public beta thing is a relatively recent phenomenon for Apple. Apple hasn't been doing public betas. And the 9.3 beta is also unique because Apple has been adding some pretty substantial features with this beta and actually marketing them. They have a web page set up to talk about all the new features that are coming in this next iOS update. And and so this is creating a really new dynamic for Apple where they are essentially testing out new features on their public uh, well but i is better put on a on a on a dedicated minority of their public right the people who are willing to install a public beta um anyway they're testing this stuff out on people 
and actually getting substantial important feedback on not just bugs but also on features and that seems to me the really fascinating thing here is this you know in the past the, the rationale behind the public beta would have been about just helping nail down bugs but this is a totally different thing this is about apple essentially getting feedback on what uh on, on what features matter to its users and what's cool about this is it's that sort of dedicated minority of users that are willing to run the beta and it actually reduces apple's risk when it comes to testing out new features because they're they're getting really i think valuable feedback from dedicated users without sort of messing up things for everybody else who doesn't care to install a public beta yeah, absolutely. And this, this whole public beta, public beta program, excuse me, was something that uh, we've talked about in previous episodes. Most recently in episode 29, we talked about these specific ones and the new approach that Apple seems to be taking with them. Uh, in a previous episode, we also talked about the, the whole fact that Apple does these beta programs now and, and kind of the implications of all of that. But yeah, this was kind of a new approach. And um, you know, the, the beta program is mostly about trying new, well, releasing new things and testing them before they're released to the public. But in Apple's response to this specific issue, it seemed they kind of highlighted that betas are often a way for them to test things and to test the response to them now too. And especially because they have this larger base of people using those betas, it makes for a better test base. The problem is that you then scare some people with functionality that you take away or changes to the way that things operate. And, and so you can sometimes get that pretty hard public pushback, which you wouldn't have done in the past. Um, and yet, you know, they seem to respond very well to this one. I think Rene Ritchie from iMore made a good point on Twitter where he said, you know, it would be nice if they made these things available as a toggle that you could turn on and off rather than just changing things without any warning and then, um, you know, not, not giving any people any information about whether this was going to be permanent as a change or not. So, but still good to see a fairly rapid response in this case and something that's going to be fixed uh, in the next version and, and perhaps even get an option for people to turn on and off. So uh, interesting example of how the, the public beta program is, is kind of evolving over time. Um, let's talk about these Mobile World Congress announcements. Um, so Mobile World Congress is, is the mobile industry's sort of global event. It takes place in Barcelona in Spain every year around this time. Um, and it's the time when many of the big um, smartphone manufacturers that are not named Apple make announcements. And so uh, Samsung had a big event on Sunday where they announced a number of new devices. LG had an event. Xiaomi had an event just today on Wednesday, uh, the day that we're recording this. Um, there were other announcements from Sony and from uh, others too. And so I wanted to talk briefly about some of those announcements. Um, Samsung released its new flagships. It's the Galaxy S7 and S7 Edge, uh, both announced at the same time. Uh, the S7 Edge is slightly larger and has a curved screen, whereas the S7 uh, it's slightly smaller and has a flat screen. Uh, both of them have some interesting new features, so they're both waterproof and dustproof. Um, and uh, I, I had got a preview of these devices a couple of weeks ago in San Francisco, and uh, really nice hardware. Um, you know, the, the the waterproof thing, we were invited to dump these phones into a, a fountain and uh, retrieve them and see that they were still working. You know, the waterproofness uh, really works, and it's kind of nice to see that in a non-ruggedized device. Um, the always-on screen is interesting, so there's this sort of fairly basic black-and-white version of the screen that stays always-on, and you can customize that a little bit with what you want on that screen in terms of the clock or... Uh, calendar or something about your next appointment or whatever. Um, the, 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 it was interesting. They've kind of restricted what can appear on that home screen. So it's not going to be a full replacement for, say, a smartwatch or something like that, where it's going to have all the same information in, in detail about notifications. So they're kind of preserving their smartwatch business by not going that far with that. Um, but really nice hardware, um, you know, well-designed software, some interesting stuff on the edge, 
you know, the Edge, the previous version of the Edge, when that announced, um, was a lot of it was about these icons that would be down the side and the fact that you could see things at the side of the phone and stuff like that. Um, they really seem to have de-emphasized that and a lot more about what they're talking about now with the Edge is one-handed usage, which is kind of interesting. So because you can kind of swipe things from the side of the screen and easily access them. Um, so it's interesting to see that, you know, the concept of the edge, which I, you know, arguably grew out of the fact that Samsung figured out how to build a curved display and didn't know what to do with it. Um, so the original concept has kind of evolved to something new now, uh, as I see it. So that was interesting. Uh, but they've also announced a 360 degree camera, which goes really well with their Gear VR uh, virtual reality uh, headset that goes with some of their phones. Uh, LG had a really interesting approach too. They um, seem to be trying to get past the issue that these companies all struggle with, which is they want to have one SKU, one flagship phone, not a dozen different ones, but that's really hard to, to reach kind of mass appeal with that for some of these companies. And so LG has this sort of friends approach where things can be kind of swapped out and plugged in for specific functionality, like there's a camera module, for example. And I found that interesting. Um, and then Xiaomi had an announcement this morning too. But Aaron, I want to stop talking and give you a chance to talk about this too. Oh, I, you know, I, I think uh, I, I think we're seeing the the frothiness of new smartphone features finally dying down. I, you know, I mean, you gave the example of the Edge and how Samsung sort of had this curved display and didn't know what to do with it. Um, I think we're seeing less and less of that, and it's in part because the smartphone is pretty standardized now. I mean. The, the you know what what you sort of expect in every smartphone is is essentially the same. Um, I also think that uh, the low hanging fruit when it comes to innovations has mostly been taken up already, and and so there's not a lot of room. I I, I think this last slate of smartphone announcements from Mobile World Congress illustrates that there are fewer innovations left in phones. It where I picture there being more innovation room left is is the quality to price spectrum, build quality. I think that's where the Mi 5 is really interesting because it is a pretty high quality phone from all the reports and it is pretty inexpensive. And it goes, and it's it's just, you know, a basic smartphone with all those basic features you'd expect, but you're getting a pretty dang good phone for the price. Um, I think there's still room in cameras. Um, I think uh, like dual camera systems, um, adjustable focus after you take an image. There are a lot of other advantages like that, I think, still to be had or still to be developed when it comes to phones. Um, and then I think the LG um, announcement shows that that smartphone manufacturers recognize there's still room in ecosystems for innovation, that you can take that basic smartphone unit and build up ecosystems around it. And LG's approach is this slot thing, which I don't have a lot of optimism toward but um you know i think in managing your home i think in health i think in payments there's a lot of room for ecosystems to still be built up around smartphones and i think that's where you're still going to see a lot of innovation um to go the problem of course for android manufacturers is that when you're building an ecosystem you kind of have to build it around android as a larger platform um and then the problem there is that you're not getting the the same competitive advantage. I mean, Samsung has its Samsung Pay, um, you know, instead of uh, Google Pay, but uh, uh, it's still, uh, there's still a lot of room in the ecosystem generally, I think. Yeah, 
For sure, absolutely. Okay, well, well, we'll drill into that in some more detail too in our question of the week later on. Uh, the last of our news roundup topics was Fitbit's earnings this week, and uh, I kind of live tweeted the earnings this year, as I sometimes do with these companies' earnings. And uh, again, same episode where we talked about the Apple Beta's episode 29, we had a deeper dive on Fitbit, so we won't dwell on it too much, but there were kind of a couple of interesting things that I pulled out of there. One was um, they are growing very rapidly. You know, this is like GoPro, a single... Uh, trick pony, as it were. Um, you know, they may really make one thing, which is fitness devices, uh, and yet, you know, their growth is amazingly strong year on year. You know, every year Q4 is far higher than Q1, two, or three, and then the next year they seem to just kind of build on that. And so, they really do have this uh, very strong growth in the fourth quarter every year. You know, it's a pretty profitable company. Um, you know, strong growth. So you could say all is well, but. If you look beneath the surface a little bit, you know their gross margins have been pretty steady at about 50%, but they're increasingly spending on sales and marketing. So their sales and marketing spend's really ramped up. A lot of that's going to TV advertising in particular, uh, and that's just unsustainable. You know, as a percentage of revenue, sales and marketing is growing significantly, and uh, it suggests that they're going to have they're having to work harder and harder to get the same growth that they've had in the past, which of course is unsustainable over the long term. Um, the other thing that's always interesting about Fitbit is looking at their data that they provide about active users. And they've, they've kind of discontinued some of the metrics they had around this that they provided when they first IPO'd. Um, but in essence, you know, they have an abandonment rate that's fairly high. And so of all their registered users, only 58% are still active. So 42% of their users have essentially stopped using the devices and stopped using the apps associated with them and so on. Um, so pretty high overall abandonment rate. And then their... Um, the other number they provided was of the new users that they brought on board in 2015, only 70-something percent were still active users at the end of the year. And given that they sell you know, roughly 60% of their devices in the second half of the year, you know, that, that's a pretty high abandonment rate within a single year as well. So that's the other thing that continues to be a worry about Fitbit is you know, they don't hold on to their users super well. A lot of users abandon them, and then you know to get more growth, they have to keep finding new users, and they're having to market more and more heavily to attract those, and so that's that's kind of challenging for them. Um, the other interesting thing was that they're investing more and more in trying to target corporate wellness programs and get sort of sponsored by companies as the device for their employees as a way of improving employee wellness and that kind of thing. That's a big emphasis for them this year, and it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, I think you nail it with your analysis because really it's going to be customer acquisition costs that will that will sink Fitbit in the end. Um, the more they have to, because they have such high turnover in their customer base, they're constantly having to acquire new customers. And, you know, I mean, the way this works is the marginal customer is on average more expensive. I mean, it's going to be harder and harder to get that next person to buy a Fitbit device. I think the fact that they're trying to find new approaches to selling Fitbits like through corporate partners is an illustration of the, the fact that they recognize this. I do want to say that you know corporate sales are going to be really hard. That's the, Those are slow lead times. You're talking about really big purchases. Um, it, it's hard to imagine a, a, a company the size that Fitbit hopes to be having a sustainable business based on that alone. Um, and so they'll still need a really strong you know, like retails, you know, consumer presence to, to succeed as a company. Part of the reason I think customer acquisition costs are going to be the thing that ultimately sinks them is because they've got the threat of commoditization on the other side. I mean, there have already been a bunch of really inexpensive fitness trackers coming out of China, 
And, and it, you know, it, it, if you look at what's happened in smartphones, there's every reason to think that can happen to fitness trackers as well. And so if you've got commoditizing of your product coming from one end and high abandonment and therefore customer acquisition costs on the other end, um, you're basically squeezing out the, the, any room for a sustainable business model. And I, I've, I, I've not been super optimistic. I think this is the flip camera all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as the fitness tracker features are commoditized, they get rolled into more sophisticated, complete devices like smart watches. And uh, I just don't see an exit for Fitbit from that problem right now. Right, right. No, agreed, agreed. Okay, well, let's move on to our question of the week. Um, and the question this week is, what's the state of the global smartphone market? And this is something that I spend a lot of my time looking at and thinking about. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm, I'm putting together a slide deck that I'll put out publicly on this as well, just because I think it's, it's useful for people to understand what's really going on here. But we thought it'd be good to do a deep dive around this. So I'm the one that's kind of prepared to talk about this this week, and Aaron's the one who's going to be pitching the questions. So the question, we always start with a really broad question, and, and, and the broad question to start with is, what is the state of the global smartphone market? Yeah, and so why don't you give us a summary of that, and then I have some other questions to help us dig into details. Yeah, so I'll just give a quick overview, and then we'll drill down in some of the details afterwards. Um, essentially, you know, you've had a smartphone market that's increasingly consolidated around two operating systems. You've got the iPhone on the one hand, you've got Android on the other. Uh, and these two basically dominate the smartphone market globally, whether that's you know in individual markets or around the world. There's, they've essentially squeezed out everything else. And you know you only have to go back to 2012, where those two platforms between them were only about 75% of the total. So it's another 25% that's been almost entirely squeezed out. The only other operating system in, in smartphones that's still relevant is Windows, but it's a fraction of the size that it, it was. It really hasn't grown, and shipments have actually been shrinking. Microsoft's really the only company that's still making those phones in any large numbers, and their shipments have been shrinking significantly. So, um, you know, it's really a story about Android and iOS. Um, it's uh, an interesting dynamic between those two, and that's something that we'll talk about more. Um, you know, obviously, Apple's obviously been the minority market share for a number of years, uh, and that continues to be the case. But there are some interesting dynamics about share of other things than just shipments that we can talk about. Um, but within Android, I think it's in some ways the more interesting story, what's going on there competitively between the different Android vendors, what's the state of those Android vendors, because a lot of them are struggling. Um, while Apple, you know, continues to do very well, Samsung's kind of the, the headliner for Android. Uh, everybody else under them has, has largely struggled, with one exception that we'll talk about. Um, so it's a really interesting time for smartphones where the dynamics are changing, the questions that we need to be asking about the smartphone market are probably different from the ones that we asked in the past. So, I mean, is the smartphone market growing anymore? There's a lot of talk about how it's stalled in the U.S. And so is it still growing? If it is, how fast? And also where? Because we're talking about the global market. Right. And so the where seems to matter a lot also. It does. It matters a huge amount because there are places like the U.S. where smartphone shipments actually fell year on year in Q4. Um, There are other markets like China where the growth has really slowed down to to a trickle. uh, And they've seen some negative growth in some quarters. Uh, on a global basis, yes, it very much is still growing. It's, you know, year on year, the numbers are definitely up quite significantly. Um, you know, this past fourth quarter, total shipments were probably about 400 million. Uh, and that was up from sort of the uh, 370-odd million number a year earlier. So there's, you know, 30 million new 
uh, smartphone purchases this year's fourth quarter compared to last year's. Uh, but that's significantly slower than it has been in the past. You know, talking about a market that's grown by sort of 60, 70 million a year in the past and it's now slowed down to sort of 20, 30 million year on year. Uh, so the growth slowed and a big part of that is mature markets. Smartphone penetration is essentially saturated. Um, the market isn't really growing in terms of the install base anymore. So it's largely about people buying replacements for smartphones they already have. Um, that applies to the US, applies to a lot of Europe, applies to China, applies to a number of other countries in Asia. Um, but there are clearly markets where smartphone growth is still very strong. And India is one of those. Um, you know, a lot of other emerging markets where there's still very low smartphone penetration and where smartphones are now hitting price points where people who never could have considered one in the past will buy one. And so there is still growth in the market, but a lot of it's coming in emerging markets and a lot of it's at the low end of the market where the average selling prices are going to be, you know, under $100 rather than, you know, five, six, seven hundred $700, which is where the premium smartphone vendors are targeted. So it's, it's going to be an opportunity for a different, for a different kind of player. Um, and it's not necessarily going to be a growth opportunity for the largest players in the market. So who is growing then? I mean, is it all just low end? Is that are those the companies that are growing, or or are there big are there bigger companies that have opportunities for growth? Yeah, almost all the growth is in the sort of mid to low end. Um, you know, look at some of the strongest growing companies: um, Huawei, which may not be a name that's familiar to all of our listeners at this point, um, is one of the fastest growing vendors. They're a Chinese vendor. Um, they don't have the brand of a Xiaomi or somebody like that that's really about a compelling brand, but they've had really broad-based success, not just in China, but across a number of other emerging markets. And then even within mature markets, they've targeted, for example, in the US, the prepaid space, where carriers are often willing to, to trust a brand that isn't necessarily that prominent um, you know, to be, to be associated with their own brand, uh, whereas they're not really willing to do that on the sort of traditional contract side of their business. Um, but they've really grown strongly, and they're now the th number three vendor um, globally. They, they overtook a number of others over the last year or so to take that position. Um, you know, Samsung's growth has really kind of stalled over the past couple of years. You know, Apple's growth has been very strong until this past quarter when they're essentially flat year on year. We already know that they're going to have a decline this coming quarter. Um, and so there's a question which we can talk about whether Apple's still going to grow. But um, a lot of smaller vendors, especially ones that target uh, specific countries, so some of the homegrown vendors in India, for example, some of the other Chinese vendors are growing strongly. Interestingly, Xiaomi, which was kind of a big success story for a couple of years, uh, or at least people were pitching it as such, their growth is really kind of stalled too. So they're seeing some of the same flatlining um, that Samsung's been seeing. They're not growing anything like as strongly as they were in the past. And they're I think they had a goal for 100 million shipments last year, and they actually sold 70 million. So their you know, growth has really slowed significantly, uh, and their strategy seems to be struggling much as other Android vendor strategy is. And part of that's just the overall shrinkage in the market, but part of it's also the increasing prevalence of low-end smartphone vendors on the Android platform that are making more and more compelling devices and willing to sell them at a fraction of the price that, say, Samsung might charge for them. So... So the mid to low end growth is pretty interesting from a competitive standpoint. But I mean, is that to you the most interesting competitive dynamic going on? Or is there something else? Like what, what is the most important competition element that uh, you think watchers should be paying attention to? Yeah, I think the challenge with the, the, the coverage of the smartphone market over the last several years has been very focused on iPhone versus Android and on Samsung versus iPhone specifically. So Samsung, Apple on the one hand and Google, Apple on the other. Um, and the fact is that, that it arguably is no longer the most interesting dynamic. You know, the, 
um, dynamic between iPhone and Android got more interesting a year ago when Apple introduced new larger phones and suddenly addressed a need that iPhone hadn't addressed before with larger screens and so on. And so they began to take share again over the course of a year. That's sort of settled down again a little bit now. I think iPhones will continue to take share in some of the more mature markets. But the more interesting dynamic to me is what's happening within Android because um, you do have Samsung that was dominant. As we've already mentioned, You know their growth has really kind of flattened over the last a uh, couple of years now as they've really struggled. And what you see is a sort of pincer movement against Samsung where iPhone's coming in at the high end and taking share from Samsung in the premium space, especially with these larger phones. And then from the low end, you've got some of these uh, other companies coming in. And Xiaomi's been one of those. Uh, but interestingly, Xiaomi is now being affected by some of the others that are coming in too. But you know, Huawei, Xiaomi, a number of other brands that probably wouldn't be familiar to, to listeners are in that space as well, taking share from Samsung because they're producing these increasingly capable devices uh, that do very much the same things as Samsung's devices do, but these companies don't feel the need to make 20% margins. You know, they can produce them more cheaply. They don't spend anything like uh, what Samsung spends on marketing, and yet they're very capable devices and they can sell them at sort of two, three hundred dollars. And so a lot of Xiaomi's shipments have been at the very low end of the market. They've been in the sort of hundred to two hundred dollar range. Um, they just introduced, you know, a new uh, high-end, higher-end phone today that has Snapdragon processor, the same processor that was running in all the other flagships on Android this year. Um, you know, very good specs across the board, really nice hardware, and yet it's selling at sort of three fifty dollars for the premium version, and even less than that for the lower-end version of it. Um, you know, way undercutting Samsung. And so, the more interesting dynamic is how these Android smartphone vendors are competing with each other and taking share within Android because Samsung's really losing share there quite significantly, uh, even as the shipments are flat because the market's growing and Android specifically is growing strongly still. Samsung's really losing ground there uh, to some of these other vendors. Um, and so it's very interesting to see that happening. Very interesting to see some of these, these lower-end Android vendors really taking share because their products are good enough, frankly. And it's not something that we see a lot of in the U.S., but it is something that's that's very prevalent in China and in other emerging markets and sort of mid-tier markets, and even in some of the European markets, some of these brands coming in and taking share there. And, and so if I look at the announcements made at Mobile World Congress that we covered briefly earlier, I feel like a lot of them are more about converting, regaining, or retaining share within the Android space and, and among Android vendors rather than necessarily trying to win iPhone users over. Um, you know, iPhone has such high kind of customer satisfaction ratings, it's almost a losing battle to try to win those customers back. You're much better off if you're an Android vendor to try to uh, try to win share within the Android uh, segment. Uh, the challenge is that most of these companies, and Samsung continues to be one of the few exceptions to this, most of these companies are really struggling to make money on Android. So that's another question I wanted to ask. I mean, you know, the fascinating thing about the smartphone market has been that Apple has sort of dominated profits and then Samsung was in a distant second. That's changed or is in the process of changing really dramatically. Can you really make money as an Android smartphone manufacturer anymore? Yeah, that's, I think, one of the, the most important questions. I think it's the biggest question that should be on Google's mind right now is if all the vendors that are building smartphones off the back of Android are losing money, how sustainable is that? And they're not all. You know, Samsung is still making money, although their profits have shrunk quite a bit over the last couple of years as they, their growth has slowed down significantly and they're having to cut prices and increase marketing to try to drive sales. Um, you know, most of the other Android smartphone vendors, Sony, LG, Lenovo, 
uh, are either losing money or making minimal profits. Uh, Lenovo is just finally getting back to break even after buying Motorola. Uh, but they are at break even. They're not really making money on smartphones right now. And it's a question as to whether they can get back to significant profits there. Um, you know, LG's been losing money. Uh, Sony's been losing money in smartphones. HTC has been losing money in smartphones. Some of the Chinese vendors are doing better. It's harder to know because their finances aren't public. Um, you know, the feeling about Xiaomi is that they, they probably are profitable, but a lot of that comes from things that aren't smartphones. Um, uh, Huawei and ZTE are, are somewhat opaque from a reporting perspective as well. And so they're two of the other big Chinese vendors. So other than those Chinese vendors that may or may not be making money and Samsung, which is, but struggling to maintain its margins, almost everybody else making phones on Android is losing money. And the simple reason is that Android is the same essentially on every smartphone. And, you know, we've gone through this interesting cycle over the last few years where uh, Samsung and others really amped up their proprietary software and features and so on to the extent where it was just a litany of gimmicks that were making up the keynotes for these devices and people just didn't buy that stuff they just really didn't go for it and so you then saw a period of one or two years where these companies then stripped those things back out again but then saw their phones very little differentiated against the competition and now they're starting to get back into some things that are a bit more meaningful from a competitive perspective and so samsung has something that hasn't been covered a great deal in the press but in this latest set of devices they're, they're using what's called the vulcan api and that's vulcan with a k um, which is sort of similar to metal on ios um, but uh, open source and so available to anybody who wants to build it into their devices. And these new Samsung devices are some of the first mainstream devices to build it in, but it's about um, graphics performance, about getting away from OpenGL, about uh, improving graphics performance, but also in improving the ability to port games from other platforms and things like that. So they're investing in some interesting things like that that are much less gimmicky, that are much more about real-world improvements and performance and so on. Um, and so that's worth watching. Um, you know, for all that I share your skepticism, Aaron, about LG's new sort of friends approach with these sort of pluggable elements, at least they're thinking about, you know, how could this be different and, and trying to innovate around things that might actually be useful. Um, and so I think you're seeing more of that. But, you know, in the maturity that you talked about earlier, you know, there aren't the huge leaps in performance to be made anymore. And so it has to be small stuff at the edges. It's always on the screens, which both LG and Samsung have in this year's new flagships. It's about waterproofing, dustproofing. It's about... Um, you know, nicer hardware. It's about, um, you know, some of these accessories that these companies are launching. You know, Sony launched a new Bluetooth earpiece that goes with their device that's a sort of virtual assistant in your ear. Um, you know, there's lots of interesting stuff happening at the edges. It's not as dramatic as some of the competition has been in the past. But the key for these companies that are all built on Android is differentiation because if you can differentiate, you can justify the premium that they're trying to charge and the premium is where the margins come in. And so that's the key. And whether they're going to be able to do that or not remains to be seen. You know, Samsung's arguably in a stronger position to do that because it has the, the deep pockets to finance it. Um, but you know, it's going to be really interesting for these, these companies to see if they can actually make money on Android going forward. So with all that that you just said, what are your predictions for the coming year? Like, What do you think is going to be happening over the you know, next 10 to 12 months? Yeah, so you know, I'll start out with iPhone because that's kind of the easiest and most self-contained part of this. And we've talked about this a little bit before. Obviously, they're going to go through a dip here in the next quarter. I think they'll recover over the next few quarters, and I think you'll get back to the longer-term trend line of, you know, mid-single-digit growth over time as they take share from Android, which is you know, Android switches something Tim Cook always highlights on earnings calls. As they uh, get more of their base to upgrade over time, as well as they take more control of that upgrade process through the 
iPhone upgrade program and so on. Uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of that kind of activity going on and that will drive some modest growth for Apple and continued fantastic margins as well. And that they'll continue to be the standout from that perspective, not just in smartphones, but across the consumer electronics industry. For Samsung, I think things are going to be really tough. I think they're going to continue to struggle to uh, gain share. I think their growth is going to continue to be fairly flat. The margins will continue to be squeezed by that pincer effect that I talked about earlier where Apple comes in at the top and the other Android vendors come in at the bottom. You know, Xiaomi is going to continue to struggle to grow its business. Um, you know, it's going to be very hard for it to compete in other markets outside China where its brand doesn't have the same cachet. Um, its model has been very much built around artificial scarcity, which, you know, drives interest and demand. But, you know, you can only take that so far. Uh, and its differentiation is, is weaker than it was. You know, it had a, a couple of years window where it was like the only Android smartphone vendor that was trying to compete directly with Apple at a lower price point. Now everybody's doing that, and Xiaomi's kind of window of opportunity seems to have closed somewhat. Um, so I think they're going to struggle. Lenovo continues to be one of the more interesting ones for me. They've really tanked in China, but the rest of their business is doing much better. Um, they're doing some work to consolidate the Moto and Lenovo brands, and so I think you know they, they're probably going to do fairly well. I think Huawei continues to do very well, take share, probably break into more Western markets with its brand on some of the more high-profile service providers as well. Um, you're going to continue to see the other category within smartphones being incredibly important. Uh, it's been one of the most, you know, if it was a carrier and if it was a vendor in its own right, other would be one of the fastest growing. Um, and that's made up of a whole mix of different companies, a lot of them from China, a lot of them also homegrown in countries like India. Uh, you know, they're increasingly important in a lot of these markets. And so um, they're going to continue to grow. Um, and, uh, you know, Microsoft's going to continue to struggle, frankly. I don't see any way for them to turn around their performance. I think another thing that you'll see a lot of is increasing targeting of the business market. It's something that Apple's done for a number of years now. Samsung's got really serious about it. And again, there's something that didn't get a ton of play in the coverage of their Mobile World Congress announcements, but they're really going into the enterprise. They have this Knox security platform uh, that's, uh, you know, competing with BlackBerry essentially and trying to secure these phones. And it's actually got very good at this point. They have some other elements that they're doing around the enterprise that are worth watching as well. Um, HP just announced a smartphone this week that's Windows-based, that's for the enterprise as well. I, I don't rate their chances. You know, they, they've been too equivocal about their commitment to the smartphone market, I think, to really gain an enterprise's confidence. But I think you'll see more targeting of the enterprise market uh, by all these vendors because that's one of the few areas where um, you know you can really differentiate yourself and, and Samsung's done that quite successfully but uh, you know Microsoft obviously has tried that and I think that's going to end up being where they retreat to to some extent it's going to be enterprises that really want an all Microsoft solution for their computing needs but that's obviously a much smaller opportunity than the total global smartphone market. That was, as always, a fascinating and informative roundup of what's going on. So thanks for all that. Well, thanks for the questions, too. So hopefully our, lead, our readers, readers, listeners found that useful <laughs> as well. And uh, as I mentioned, I, I hope to have a slide deck with some numbers and charts and things that kind of illustrate all these out in the next few days. So uh, we'll mention that on a future episode if, uh, if that happens. Uh, our final topic is, again, picking up this topic from last week about Apple and the FBI and this uh, court case and the broader discussion around privacy and security uh, with Apple products in particular, but really it's a broader issue than that as well. And there was a number of things that happened since our last conversation about this. Uh, the FBI put out both uh, privately and publicly various statements about uh, what they're trying to do here. There was the DOJ weighed in, the U.S. Department of Justice weighed in on this. Um, Apple put out a Q&A 
Uh, that was kind of a follow-up on their privacy letter from from uh, Tim Cook. Uh, Bill Gates was asked about all of this and weighed in on it and then subsequently tried to walk back some of his comments. That other tech companies finally started to weigh in, some of them in a more muscular way, some of them still in a fairly um, gentle way. Um, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal about the fact that the FBI had quite a number of other phones where they'd made similar requests to the one in the San, San Bernardino case. And there was a poll from Pew about... Um, people, the public opinion around all of this and, and who people side with. And so we're going to pick some of that apart. Aaron, I've been talking for quite a while now, so why don't you pick up and talk about what's most interesting to you in all of this? I think one of the things that's been interesting is the public campaign involved here. And I don't think the public, is, I don't think the communication about the issue has, has yet reached the point where the public can wrap their head around it. One of the things I've noticed in the press on Twitter and elsewhere is there's been something of a metaphor parade, right? Yes. Like people are uh-huh. people are trying to come up with the right metaphor. I think Bill Gates, it, you know, his comments are a great example of that because he essentially equated this to, you know, a bank tying a ribbon around, I don't remember what. A hard drive, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Right, a hard drive and, and, you know, whether or not the, the FBI can ask them to cut that ribbon. It was a silly, silly example because it made... Apple's effort in this seem, I think, much more trivial than it would actually have to be. But but his metaphor, his attempt at, a, at an effective metaphor is 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 an endemic problem right now. All all these people are trying to come up with the right metaphor to be able to explain this to the public in a way that's accurate. And I think you're going to see a fight. And I don't know that we'll ever, if we can't settle on one, I think it's going to be too obscure of a topic for most people in the United States to to care enough about. Um, and I think what's instead going to happen instead of metaphors is you're going to get a lot of scare tactics on mm-hmm. both sides. Yeah. I mean, you know, the idea of the government sn- snooping on everybody's phones, you know, the actually reading the data off of people's phones remotely. And then on the other side, it's going to be, you know, rampant crime and terrorism if uh, if Apple gets away with this sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's unfortunate. There are real repercussions on both sides that, you know, the, there are real issues that affect people's lives in a very genuine way. Um, there's going to be a lot of rhetoric bounced around too about you know freedom versus security and safety and American greatness and you know what is more American uh, you know supporting law enforcement or or protecting privacy uh, you know I, I I think the metaphor parade right now is illustrating how this is a complicated topic and the fact that nobody's come up with like a clear sort of signal like you know like with I'm trying to think of another topic that's generally obscure and arcane, and the estate tax is a good example of this. And then conservatives came up with the name death tax, and it crystallized everything and had a lot of clarity to help people understand it. And, and uh, you know, some would say that mischaracterized it, but the point is, is that became, you know, this obviously goes back over a decade, but that became this sort of new way that stuck with the public to understand it. And I don't think that's happened yet. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think one of the biggest challenges that Apple faces, and you know, there's Pew Polls a good example of this, um, and we can talk about the kind of the specific wording there and whether it was actually helpful, but um, you know, the FBI's case here is very easy to distill to a single sentence, right? So we want to get into this phone and Apple won't let us, um, you know, and it's a terrorist phone and so on, and you know, it's very easy to make that case. And the problem is that Apple's case is much more complex. Um, you know, if it's really to be made properly, it's complicated to make um, because it's not just about this one device it's about the broader issues this device isn't about encryption but this gets into the broader issue of encryption 
you know, yes, technically, whatever software Apple created for this device, if it had the you know unique device identifier built into it, would only work on this device, and so that's technically true. And yet, the exact same software with one very minor change would work on other devices. And you know, so that it's it's tough for Apple because in the court of public opinion, it's all about these simple messages. To your point, and Apple's is complex, and the FBI's arguably is simple, simplistic perhaps, and oversimplistic, but. It's much easier, I think, for the FBI to make its case in a single sentence than it is for Apple, uh, unless it resorts to something very, very high level, like we're trying to protect your privacy and security, which, you know, is, you know, relatively easy for the FBI to come back at with what it's just about this one phone. Um, and so I think that's the hard thing here is I think the vast majority of people won't take the time to really understand all the ins and outs of either this case or the topic in general. And you know, I've kind of mentioned this last week too, but I just am concerned that in the court of public opinion, it's going to be very hard for Apple to, to really take its case in all its detail and complexity to the people that, that will ultimately end up, you know, needing to make a decision about all of this. Well, and, you know, Apple has been pushing to get this decided by Congress rather than a court order. And I think once this gets into Congress, the potential for obfuscation and confusion and rhetoric is 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 only going to be stronger. Absolutely. I, in fact, I'm kind of surprised that Apple has done that. But the one thing it does for Apple is it buys them time. The problem with court orders is that they all come with uh, time limits attached. I mean, every court order, you know, is essentially a ticking bomb. And if you don't reply in time, all sorts of bad things happen. That's not true for Congress, obviously. Right? <laughs> right? They can argue about this for years and if if apple can get this t you know brought into a different you know panel right away from a judge um and over to legislators i, I think it gives them at least time which they have less and less of if it stays in the courts right yeah and it was interesting i mean yeah tim cook kind of both in his email to employees and, and in the Q&A sort of said that Apple would prefer a commission be set up to look at all of this. And I think the other thing is, you know, in a court case, it's it's hard to, I mean, of course, judges listen to arguments about precedence and the power of precedence and so on. But ultimately, it's one person making a decision. And it's very hard to know how to influence that that one person or which way they're going to go on it. And so your fate's in the hand of one person. And I think, you know, Apple would rather, you know, have a very public discussion where it's very obvious who the people are, what their motivations are, and you can appeal to their, you know, sense of judgment, their sense of fairness, you can appeal to their sense of um, patriotism, you can, you know, do all these things, you know, which don't necessarily work in quite the same way in a court case with a judge who's supposed to be kind of impartial and deciding on the basis of the facts and so on. And so I wonder if that's the other reason why Apple wants to get it out in public is, I mean, A, it is public, it'll get broader coverage and be more about principles and less about specifics of one particular case. And I think that's the other thing is they're trying to get away from this case, which, as I talked about last week, is particularly unpleasant for them to have to kind of defend their stance on, given it involves a you know a terrorist and so on. Um, but uh, you know, it, it, once it's out in public, Apple's very good at public messaging. Um, and yes, they've hired great lawyers, and I'm sure they'll do very well in the court case too. But you know, Apple's very good at public messaging. They have vocal fans, some of whom have already organised protests and things like that this week, albeit on a small scale. Um, but you know, there's a lot that Apple can do in public, which you can't necessarily do in the same way with a court case. I think that's true. I, I, I you know, I think uh, in the end, there is a path for Apple to win this issue. Um, I think clear and simple messaging will be important. 
Um, I think taking it away from this one phone and making it a case about multiple phones would be really important. That's why the Wall Street Journal article was such a help to the Apple position this week. Um, the less it's about the San Bernardino terrorists and the more it's about, you know, law enforcement seeking, you know, to intrude in all sorts of phones. Mm -hmm. um, this is, I think ultimately that's Apple's path is is making this into a big issue. And I really think that they can crystallize a simple message, you know, which is, look, this is about your privacy and this is, you know, been privacy has been a part of American life since the Bill of Rights. I mean, you know, since the Fourth Amendment, we've had a right to protection against intrusion from government in all sorts of ways when it comes to our private lives. And and I think Apple, where Apple can screw up on this and step in it is when they try to get too much into the technical details. And the FBI and law enforcement, for their part, the government, they're they're. I think one of the best things that they can do to make their case is, is to make it sound that the, the technical hurdles are essentially trivial, right? Mm -hmm. That Apple, mm -hmm. this massive company with all these resources could, you know, could do this without it even really, you know, showing up on, on the income statement. Right. And I think that's exactly why Apple has not made that counter argument. You know, they've never said anywhere, you know, this is overly burdensome. That's not been their argument because nobody's going to be that sympathetic. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, to the extent the FBI is trying to make this about a single case, you know, the fact that the Wall Street Journal and others have been reporting all the other cases where the same stuff would apply, I think is very helpful to Apple's cause, you know, because it flies in the face of the argument that the FBI has been making here. Um, you know, the Bill Gates comments I found particularly interesting because they were reported in an article by the Financial Times based on an interview. And then I guess Bill Gates went on Bloomberg and, and sort of tried to walk some of it back. Although, you know, the the comments he made originally, the FT's now released the actual video of that interview, and I found that helpful because you got a sense that Bill Gates didn't really actually understand the case. Yeah. You know, it kind of reminded me, I mean, there were times early in my career where I was suddenly put in a position, either with a client or otherwise, to have to talk about something I wasn't really prepared to talk about. And I know the kind of thought process you go through, I know the kinds of things that you say, and it, it very much, his approach and his demeanor and the kinds of words that he used very much reminded me of the, my feeling and my approach in those situations where you've kind of read something about a topic, you don't really understand it in detail, and so you try to bluff your way through it. And this whole thing about a ribbon around a hard drive suggested that he believed this was about something completely different than it was, you know. Um, this wasn't a situation where Apple had somehow after the fact sort of implemented something or even where there was sort of some easy way for Apple using existing tools to unlock the phone. Um, and yet that was very much kind of what he was suggesting, that Apple was somehow sort of drawing this arbitrary line where it was able to do something, you know, using the tools that it already had at its disposable, at its disposal and simply was refusing to do it. And it just it made it seem like he didn't know what he was talking about. And I suspect since... In between the time he did the FT interview and then when he was on Bloomberg, he'd taken the time to understand it properly, seen the reaction to his comments, and then sort of moderated it somewhat, although even then it wasn't exactly a full-throated sort of defense of Apple at that point. But I, I found that particularly interesting. Yeah, and that really is emblematic of the public uh, right. image issue with the entire thing. You can have a lot of people forming opinions based on incomplete information. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this time last week, I think I probably mentioned it on the episode, I was, you know, being asked to do radio interviews where some of the questions I was being asked were clearly based on a flawed understanding of what was at stake. And, you know, Bill Gates is not somebody who's going to have difficulty understanding the technical elements. 
Um, but he's somebody who's perhaps not taken the time, or hadn't taken the time at the time of the FT interview to understand all the ins and outs of this particular case. And if he didn't, why would regular people do so who don't have the technical grounding to understand it either? All right, well, we'll leave it there for now. I imagine this is a topic we're going to keep discussing over the next few weeks, if not every, every week, then certainly from time to time as there's important news and developments here. Um, we'll wrap up this episode as we usually do with our weekly pick, which is where we take it in turns to recommend something that we have been enjoying or using. Um, just as a reminder, this is not something that we're being, this is not a form of advertising or native advertising. This is simply a way for us to recommend something that we've been enjoying or using. So uh, Aaron's turn this week, and I think he's going to recommend a website to us. I am. It's called SeriousEats.com. Um, it's a food blog. Uh, cooking blog is a better way to describe it, although they do also review restaurants and other things. Um, if you're a fan of America's Test Kitchen, Cooks Illustrated, um, or any of that sort of approach to cooking, the idea of you know refining recipes and having the author of the recipe tell you the story of how the recipe was refined, taking a scientific approach, um, and uh, and also you know equipment reviews and all that kind of stuff. If you like that, this is a fantastic website. Um, they cover all kinds of topics, all kinds of foods, uh, kitchen gadgets, uh, you know, you name it. Um, they, you know, and a lot of them are also oriented toward, um, toward new cooks. So you don't have to have like an extensive cooking background to get a lot out of this. Um, you know, for example, they have an article, 10 common crimes against cheese. You don't have to commit, um, they, <laughs> they have great recipes, um, They've been a bit, uh, you know, and, and these are very personality driven too. And I really like the personalities of the writers. And so they come across as very human and interesting. Um, it's It's been a go-to for me now uh, on a pretty regular basis for the last couple months. Um, the uh, One of the authors um, is a guy named Kenji Lopez-Alt, who um, uh, has a fascinating background because I get the... Uh, uh, because I, I think his cultural background actually provides him with a really broad, fascinating uh, food experience. And so he comes in with a lot of great ideas and, uh, and approaches to food. He actually formerly worked with Cooks Illustrated, was an editor there, and is now writing for Serious Eats. Um, anyway, I highly recommend it. I have it in my daily feed. Um, and uh, if you enjoy that kind of stuff, I think you'll love Serious Eats. Great. Well, thanks, Aaron. We'll put the link to that along with other links to things that we've talked about today on the Beyond Devices website uh, at podcast.beyonddevices. We thank you for being with us, as always. Um, grateful for your time and uh, welcome your feedback through Twitter or on the website or otherwise. Leave us a review on iTunes if you have a few minutes. We've got some great reviews already there, but we'd love to get more. Um, even just a rating helps people to discover the podcast as well. So thanks for your time. We look forward to being with you again next week.